All right, Philippians chapter 1. I'll start reading in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ Jesus is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer this morning, that you would be proclaimed, that your name would be made much of, that I would decrease, that you would increase. So please bless now the preaching of your word as we have, we have read your word, as we've heard your word now. Uh, please bless uh, the preaching. Uh, may it uh, work in our lives by your spirit to grow us in knowledge and in truth and to grow us in Christ's likeness. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what would come to mind uh, when I say the word relentless. What comes to mind? Maybe you're thinking of Patrick Mahomes refusing to go out of the game even with a high ankle sprain. That guy is relentless. Or maybe it's Alex Woods at his MMA fight. You should have seen it. That guy, that other guy could not keep him down. He kept getting back up. That other guy was so winded after that fight. I was out of breath just watching it. But Alex was relentless. Nothing was going to stop him. You know, we can think of so many uh, different things or different people or different scenarios that, that come to mind when we think of relentless. But one of the things that we should think of is the gospel. You see, everybody was attacking the gospel. Everybody was attacking Jesus' church from all sides, from from outside the church, the the Roman officials, the Jewish authorities. They were attacking the church from within the church as well. There were people in opposition to Paul and to his message. They all tried to stop the gospel, but the gospel is unstoppable. And we see that so clearly in our passage this morning. That brings us to Paul's imprisonment here in Rome. We see Paul, he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi in chains. Because everyone, the Roman and Jewish officials, they all wanted to put an end to this good news that Paul was proclaiming. This news that Paul was spreading about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who had risen again from the dead on the third day for the forgiveness of the sins of all. This missionary, Paul, and his team, they were, they were turning the whole world upside down. That was the, the claim that the Jewish authorities made to the authorities in Thessalonica. These men are turning the world upside down. And you know what? They were right. Every city Paul went to, the gospel was being proclaimed. People were turning from idols to the living and true God. And their radical new lives centered around Jesus and his teaching. It was causing a ruckus in the empire. And so they sought to put an end to it by taking captive the ringleader himself, Paul, 
and bringing him in chains to Rome. And so that's where Paul is right now. He's arrested. He's in Rome. He's writing, most likely writing while he's chained to a Roman official himself who is keeping constant watch over him. And whether in a jail cell at this point or in his own private accommodations that he would be covering for himself with his own his own money. Paul was under constant watch. He was under constant arrest and his living situation was very bleak. Even his trip to Rome, we know, was fraught with all kinds of struggle and peril. He was beaten. He was arrested on multiple occasions. He was even shipwrecked on the island of Malta. We we know in the book of Acts on his way to Rome. And when he finally gets there, he's, he's under arrest and he's waiting for the emperor's decision on his appeal against the accusations of his enemies. And he does not know which way it's going to go. We'll see that next week as he wrestles between the two options, either freedom or, or death. That's what's facing him. That's what's before him. He doesn't know what will happen. What he does know is that no matter what happens, he rejoices. And it's in this context that he writes to the Philippians because he wants them to be sure themselves and to know that all of this was God's doing. And all of it had served the cause of the gospel. And because that's the case, they ought to be rejoicing with him. You see, because instead of hindering the gospel, God has used this to his advantage Paul's imprisonment. Rather than keeping the gospel under lock and key, the gospel was spreading even more. As one pastor puts it, rather than impairing the gospel progress, Paul's chains have blazed a trail for gospel invasion. And so if you're worried about the world around us in any way, Worried about the way things are going. We need to remind ourselves of this. The things were not as bad even as they were in Paul's day. And even if they get that bad, even if they get even worse, God remains sovereign over everything. And we can rejoice knowing that he works all things for his good. That's the message of our passage this morning. That we can rejoice in this relentless gospel. God is not surprised by anything. He's working all things for the sake of his kingdom. Even the capture and arrest of Paul, God was using to bring the gospel behind enemy lines. That's why Paul can write in his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, I might be bound with chains, but the word of God is not bound. And he's able to write that because he's seen it firsthand. The gospel is relentless, it's unbound, it's unstoppable. And in that, we should rejoice. So our passage then from verse 12 to the first half of verse 18, it divides neatly for us into into three sections that we're going to work through in order, in the order of the text. In each of these sections, it'll show us why we can rejoice in this relentless gospel. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the first section, the first part that we see is that the gospel advances despite Paul's chains. Verses 12 through 14. We see that after Paul finishes his introductory thanksgiving and prayer that we've looked at the past couple weeks, he starts in verse 12 of a narration of his current circumstances, 
of his present arrest and imprisonment. And he writes to the members of the church in Philippi that he wants them to know. He wants them to know that what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's arrest, his, his imprisonment, his upcoming trial, all of that has happened in accordance to God's will so that the gospel would advance. You see, that word advance or, or progress, it, it's a helpful bookend for us. It shows up twice in this broader section. It'll show up again in verse 25 where Paul says that he knows that the Philippians will be progressing or advancing in their faith. And so these words, they bookend this larger section where Paul's narrating his present circumstances to the Philippians, verses 12 through 26. The gospel is advancing and progressing throughout the whole world, and the Philippians are advancing and progressing in their faith. And all of this is by God's grace. All this is God's doing. He's working according to his will and to his glory. And so the gospel is advancing, it's going forth, it's progressing. But where is it progressing to? Where is it going? Where is it advancing? See, this is the remarkable and surprising twist in our story. Under arrest, under the watchful supervision of the Praetorium Guard, the gospel is advancing even among them. This is the imperial guard of Caesar. They're, they're always watching. They're the most well-trained soldiers in the army. They, uh, they're uh, required to keep guard of the emperor himself. And yet even these well-trained soldiers can't keep the gospel down. Paul says in verse 13 that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That is the praetorium, the, the, the guard of, uh, of Caesar. And to all the rest, that my imprisonment... Is for Christ. Listen to that. The, throughout the whole Imperial Guard. There was no one in that group that had not heard the message of Christ. They all knew that Paul was here for Christ. And that he gladly accepted these chains for Christ. And that he was going to use these change, chains to preach Christ to them. And as he's preaching, this gospel proclamation had such an impact that at the end of this letter, as, he's, as Paul is giving these uh, final greetings to the Philippians, Paul will say, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. That's the unstoppable, relentless gospel. Not just despite the chains, but in fact, God had ordained to use them to bring the gospel even to Caesar's own household, even to his very doorstep, even to the members of his own house, to the members of his own imperial guard. And because of this incredible advancement behind enemy lives, Paul says in verse 14, and most of the brothers, the brothers in the Lord, the, the fellow Christians there in Rome, they have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Sometimes it just takes one person. It just takes one action, one, one person to stand up for what they believe in. And that's encouraging for us. You never know who's watching. You never know what kind of impact your faithfulness and just the daily grind will have. 
See, Paul, he, he never stopped grinding, as it were, for the Lord, because he knew that God was working. His chains were precious to him because those were the chains that God was using to bring about the gospel. So we see, regardless of, of our circumstances, God is at work. God was at work in Paul. He was advancing the gospel despite his chains. That's the relentless nature of the gospel that we see in those first few verses. That's the first thing that we see. But second, we also see that the gospel advances despite mixed motives. We see that in verses 15 through 17. Paul tells us that because of his arrival, many had started preaching the gospel with more vigor. After he arrived in Rome, there was an an influx of gospel preaching. But not all of them were preaching out of good motives. Some men, uh, there was uh, an ulterior motive behind their preaching. They were preaching from a position of, of envy and rivalry, wishing to do harm against Paul. In other words, they turned the the proclamation of the gospel, uh, they turned it into a means to an end. An end of their own selfish ambition and their own desires. They wanted to advance their own career or their own status in life and they wanted to put Paul down in the process. Preaching Christ was done not for the sake and glory of Christ, but for their own sake, for their own desires, their own wishes. And so who were these these people that were preaching from these these false motives? Well, we can say a few things about this situation in Rome. For starters, we know uh, that this was not an issue of orthodoxy. Paul's very quick in his other letters and in other circumstances to to, uh, put away and to uh, do away with any false teaching. Anything that would be contrary to the gospel. But he does not do here. They were not preaching a false gospel. Otherwise, Paul cannot rejoice in their message. So they must have been truly preaching Christ. But sadly, we we know that. That it's true that one can preach correct doctrine. But out of false and insincere motives. And so that's what's happening here. We also know that the Roman Christians, they were divided over Paul. Some, of course, cherished Paul. They, they loved Paul. They were glad that he was here with them. They were glad and, and appreciative of his apostleship. But others we see were, were envious of him, even to the point of wanting him dead. They wanted to see him beat down. They, they enjoyed seeing him in prisons and in chains. And, and so they were preaching with a new vigor that thinking they're, they're, by their preaching, they might rouse up those in Caesar's household to to give Paul a harsher sentence and to treat him more harshly. You see, they had let the desires over power and status, they'd let those desires overcome them. And they, they used to be the big shots in the church. But Paul arrived and took away some of their notoriety. And so they're preaching again. They start preaching the gospel more and more, not necessarily to see the church grow. But if the church did grow because of their preaching, they wanted to make sure that people knew it was because of them. And if they stirred up the Roman authorities to uh, abuse and harass Paul more, then 
That's all the better. So that's why they're preaching. And that's why Paul says in verse 17 that they that he thinks that they would preach so that they might afflict me in my imprisonment. They were glad that he was in chains and they they wanted him to stay that way. I'm preaching from from false motives and mixed motives. It's, it's sadly it's a it's a perpetual problem in the church. And it's a somber warning for us. And for me, as I was reading some of the commentaries on this passage, one of the commentators, he he referenced and he brought up the ordination vows uh, that officers in the the PCA take. uh, The same vows that I took here a few months ago. I'm going to read the fourth vow that every uh, minister in the PCA must take. The fourth vow says, have you been induced as far as you know from your own heart? To seek the office of holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son. That's a very sobering vow. First, it raises the question, am I doing this from sincere desires? You can see the connection between that vow and our text this morning. Am I seeking to promote God's glory or am I seeking to promote my own? Am I preaching the gospel of Christ to the glory of Christ or am I preaching it to increase my glory? The great William Perkins, he he wrote the work on preaching back in the, the end of the 16th century. And he wrote that the sum of preaching, the sum of the sum of preaching is to preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. That's the sum of preaching. That must be the preacher's goal. That must be what I strive for as 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 imperfectly as I do aim for it. And in thinking about this, I I have to share this story because I think it perfectly sums up the meaning of our passage here. I was sitting uh, in the den uh, uh, at uh, Jess's aunt and uncle's house. That's where we lived uh, for a few months before we moved here. We stayed with them. And while I was sitting there, I was on the phone. I remember I was on the phone with Cody. We were talking about everything. This is a good story about Cody. So I, I know I've given everyone a heart attack before. Cody and I were talking on the phone. We talked for probably over an hour. We were just talking about everything. We were talking about what we were doing, what we need to, to do, the short list of things we should tackle when I get here, uh, the things that he's doing, uh, all of this stuff. We're talking about all of it. And I still remember uh, sitting there and I just remember him telling me that whatever you need, he's telling me, whatever you need me to do so that you will be successful, I will do it. Whatever I'm doing right now that you should be doing, I want to give that to you. I'll do everything in the background just so that people know that you're our pastor, that you would be successful that you could come in and thrive. You can't show me someone who cares more about Jesus and his church than Cody. And I know that when Cody preaches, it's not out of false motive because I know that everything he does is for Christ. Christ. 
That's who we need to be. Are you serving Christ in whatever vocation the Lord has given you? This does not just apply to the pastor. This applies to all of us. And whatever the Lord has given you to do, are you doing it out of a sincere desire to serve Christ? Out of the simple joy that it is to belong to Jesus? Or is there some other motive? In everything, may it be for Christ. For Christ alone. We've seen how the gospel is relentless and it's advancing even despite Paul's chains. We've seen how it's advancing even despite false and mixed motives. That brings us to the third thing. Finally, in everything, verse 18, Paul says, I rejoice. We rejoice because God is in control and God is advancing his gospel. And so that's why Paul can say in verse 18, what then? What should I do? What should I make of these people who are preaching the gospel? I know their motives. I know that they're out to get me. What should I do? Only that in every way, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, if Christ is proclaimed, then I'm going to rejoice. God is at work and Paul is going to rejoice in it despite his own circumstances. Thomas Watson, another uh, great Puritan, he wrote about this verse, commenting on this on this verse. And and he says that God can reap his glory out of men's fury. Indeed, God can. He he can and he does work everything for his own glory and for ultimate good. And we see this so clearly throughout Scripture. We see this all throughout Scripture. The story of Joseph, Joseph at the end of Genesis. After he was sold into slavery by his own brothers, after he was thrown into prison himself because he was unwilling to disobey God and he fled from temptation and from sin. And after all this, he's able to look back over his life and all that God had accomplished through his life. And he's able to tell his brothers at the end of Genesis in chapter 50. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It was truly evil what his brothers did to him. But God used that. In fact, he had ordained it to holy ends. And this is the theme verse in Genesis. This this verse at the end of Genesis, it helps us interpret the whole book. It helps us interpret all of scripture. Evil entered the world through sin, yet in accordance with God's holy and perfect will, beyond our comprehension to understand fully and perfectly, we know that what we meant for evil, God had meant for good. And he is working it out for the good. This is the truth of that verse, that well-known verse in Romans 8, 28. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good. Well, what kind of good? What is Paul saying there? Is he saying all things are working together for the good of my own financial stability? Or for my own health? Or for my wealth? Or for any of these things? All things are working out for good. That is the the ultimate good in accordance with God's will. And what is our ultimate good if it's not life eternal with God himself? That is what Paul means in Romans. That is what Paul was rejoicing in here in Philippians. And I'm sure that his chains were uncomfortable. I would not like to be in chains myself. I prefer not to be. 
But what I do know and what I, I hope that I can make known in my life is that God is working all things for good. And no matter what comes my way, no matter what comes our way, no matter what God has before us, we must rejoice. I want to read uh, a somewhat of a, a longer quote this morning. Uh, it's from a, uh, from a devotional. Uh, I encourage you all to get it. Not that you already don't have enough devotionals. Not that there's enough devotionals out there. But this one I, I've, I've really enjoyed and benefited from. and uh, It's called God is Always Better Than We Can Imagine. Uh, by Ian Wright. Uh, published by the Banner of Truth. And he's going through uh, passage by passage. Showing and demonstrating just how wonderful God is, how faithful he proves himself to be. And there uh, is a section in one of his devotionals that touches on this subject. This the subject that uh, is that uh, are we trusting in God that he's always working and he's always working all things for our good? Are we trusting in him to do that? Are we willing to simply trust in him and even rejoice when we can't see the bigger picture? Similar to Job's struggle. That we read from earlier in the service. This is a problem in our own lives as we struggle with with painful relationships, with difficult marriages, with with waning health that makes every single day a battle. We have all kinds of struggles. We have all kinds of things we're going through. Are we trusting in the Lord? And it's also a problem in the church when we can sometimes forget that the relentless gospel is God's gospel. It's not our own. And because it belongs to God, it doesn't need our help. We're simply called to proclaim it. We're not called to make it better. But we've lost some confidence in the simple and ordinary preaching and the ordinary means of grace that God has promised. He's promised these and these means to bless them and to grow the church and to strengthen us from them. And so Ian Wright, he's reflecting on this sad reality as he writes this devotional about Abraham and Sarah. You remember them in the book of Genesis, how they were given the promise of God to have a son. But unfortunately, they trusted in themselves to to produce an heir for them instead of trusting in God's promise. So with that context, let me read this quote uh, to you now. I trust it'll be be worth it. He writes, we may be strong in faith to believe that God will, in the end, accomplish all that he purposes. But weak in faith to trust with regards to the means God will use. For example, why is there an emphasis in some evangelical circles on drama in place of the sermon? Might it not come from the fact that evangelical believers have lost confidence in the power of the pulpit? The preaching of the word of God has not been anointed with the outpouring of the spirit as in previous generations. So like Sarah, we give God a helping hand. What we need are better techniques. Let's use the latest video technology for presenting the gospel. Let's give people something something to look at, we say. But faith comes by hearing. Or so the Bible says in Romans chapter 10. It is the foolishness of preaching that God uses to convert sinful people. Perhaps preaching is simply meant to be foolish so that all might know that the conversion of the sinner was accomplished by the power of the spirit of the living God and not because the preacher used all the latest presentational techniques to manipulate his audience. 
I love that quote. I love Jesus. I love that Jesus loves his church more than I ever can and ever will. I love that it's Jesus' gospel. That my job is not to improve upon that. My job is simply to proclaim it as news to you. And that he will be building his church. And I love the way Pastor David Strain, he, he sums it up so well. He says, we must rest on gospel providence, whatever our circumstances, and be faithful in the ministry of the means of grace. And then watch as the Lord builds his church in ways that defy expectations so that all the glory might go to him. Being arrested and put in a Roman prison cell is the strangest church growth technique out there. And you're not going to find it in any textbook. But that's how God worked to build his church. So where does that leave us then? Well, it should leave us with a reminder that the gospel of Jesus is relentless. That God's word never returns void. It can never be stopped. And that is reason for rejoicing. If it needed our help, it wouldn't be that great of a gospel. In fact, it would be no gospel at all. Because it would cease to be good news. News is a proclamation. It is by definition not an action. Not something that we do or cooperate with. It's something that we receive. And So have you received the gospel? Have you accepted Christ? If you have not, then today is a great day to do that. And if you haven't, that's my prayer that the gospel would be relentless in your life. I pray that for all of us here, that the gospel would be relentless in us, that we would never forget the wonder of this good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that we would rejoice in it always. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, We thank you for the promises of scripture. We thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you for the gospel that is yours. We thank you that you are the essence of the gospel. That it is a person. That we can trust in you. That we truly know you. That you are a good shepherd. That we as your sheep, we we know your voice. And I pray that we would trust in you. That we would trust in you in all things. That we trust in you in matters related to the church. In matters related to our own families. In matters related to our own lives. That we would know that you are working in everything. And working in all things for our good and for your glory. Help us to rest in that amazing truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.